0: You're here today, chances are very good that you're going to die. Not today, not here, that's not what I'm saying. But in general, unless you're alive when Christ returns, there's a 100% chance that you're going to die. But that's not always been God's plan. You understand that, right? Originally, that's not the way God intended life to be. He didn't design life To end in death. You remember in the Garden of Eden, when he first created man and woman, he created them perfect in a world that was perfect and intended them to live forever. They were commanded to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth within the perfection of that created order. But we know that things didn't stay that way. We know that plans changed, or I should say the situation changed, because man and woman fell into sin, and when they fell into sin, there were consequences, the most immediate of which, of course, was death. Their bodies began to decay, and eventually they died in their mortal bodies. Of course, the good news is that that's not the end of the story either, because God was unwilling to accept defeat. God was unwilling to accept the defeat by Satan or the defeat by sin or even the defeat by death. And so he sets in motion a plan that he had laid out before creation, a plan to restore the original design of creation, a plan to once again do away with death, and to do away with the sin that causes death. A plan once again to have men and women living in his presence in their bodies in a renewed creation forever. This is the plan of salvation. This is the grand scope of the Bible. It does not involve compromise. It isn't some sort of concession. And there is no adjustment on the part of God. It's not as if God created mankind with the intent for them to dwell bodily with Him forever, but then sin eliminated that possibility by establishing the principle of death, bringing an end to all human bodies. And now, if God wants us to be with Him, He must now settle for some half measure some abandoned plan where the best He can hope for is some sort of ghostly, spiritual existence on our part before Him. No, God's plan involves no compromise. It is a complete undoing of the work of sin. A complete restoration of his order in the Garden of Eden, a complete salvation which involves both our souls and our bodies and brings a restoration to our souls, to our body, not to mention to the earth and to all of creation. Everything God originally designed for it to be. Any kind of salvation or any kind of thought of eternity which doesn't involve that, is in fact incomplete. In fact, it's no salvation. Any thought of what you might call heaven or what you might call eternal life, which doesn't involve a complete restoration of your body and of a created world, is no salvation. It would be a compromise. It would be a half measure. And it would leave death still reigning in the universe. This is exactly, however, what most people think, probably, when they think about heaven, when they think about eternal life. They imagine that if there is salvation, it is simply spending eternity floating around in the clouds in some sort of ghostly experience. They don't certainly imagine salvation in their bodies, and certainly not a restoration of the earth and of creation. It is just some non-material existence in some non-material world somewhere out there. Now, this is exactly what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is all about. The whole chapter, all 58 verses, are written to confront And to challenge that very notion. The whole idea of a salvation which does not involve your body or the renewal of creation. It's challenging this this notion that you could ever have a salvation without a defeat of death. Which necessarily involves a resuscitation or a resurrection of your bodies. Because a defeat of death is one and the same with a defeat of sin. With that comes the reversal of every curse and every consequence that sin brought with it. Now Paul's writing to a group, uh, particularly this Corinthian group, who had apparently come to believe just such a lie. They had come to believe in a salvation that did not involve a resurrection, did not involve their bodies, And Paul will tell them such a belief, therefore, involves no salvation. In fact, he states the central issue there in verse 12 of the chapter. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Apparently, some of them were saying that. Apparently there was some group some contingency and probably a large contingency within the Corinthian church as there were likely in many of the Roman uh, uh corners of the Roman empire there were a number who were saying precisely that that there is no resurrection of the dead that somehow Whatever they concocted in their mind to think of Jesus and to think of eternity and to think of salvation did not involve a material body. Paul is writing all of this to challenge that very point and to emphasize that the resurrection and particularly the resurrection of Christ as central to the message of salvation is, in fact, not only necessary, but it is the message that they have heard from the beginning, proclaimed by every apostle, and the one which, by which they were saved, and in which, if they do not hold fast to, then their forfeiture of salvation is clear. Listen to the way Paul presents it in the first 11 verses. I'll just read them for you. He says in verse 1 Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried. Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, so you believe. Paul's laying out for them here a number of reasons why a believer cannot deny the resurrection of why a believer cannot reject the resurrection in any way, shape, or form. Not just the resurrection of Christ, but your own resurrection. Because they are, they are tied up together. They are inseparable elements of the defeat of sin and of eternal salvation. And so he begins to lay out here for us five reasons why a believer cannot reject the resurrection, and most particularly the resurrection of Christ in these first 11 verses because this becomes the foundation of the rest of what he has to say about our own resurrection. And he tells them, first of all, in verses 1 and 2 there, that they can't reject the resurrection of Christ because it is, first and foremost, necessary for salvation. He says, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you're saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach, unless you believed in vain. So he's going to write to them here to remind them that no matter what they're professing now, what they originally were called to believe in was a message of not only the death and burial, but also of the resurrection of Christ. As a matter of fact, if you were to just open up and read the book of Acts and just read the account of of all of the preaching of the early church, what you're going to find is that the centerpiece of what the proclamation of the church was wasn't some uh, new moral order, and it's, it wasn't some, some uh, call to just wonderful works. And to tell you the truth, it wasn't even simply the death of Christ. It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This was the cornerstone of what they heard. This is what had miraculously changed their lives, Paul says. He delivered it to them, they received it, they were saved by it, and they stand in it. Unless, of course, he says, you believed in vain. Paul's not suggesting there that somehow, uh, that if they don't hold fast in verse 2, if you don't hold fast to the word that I I preached to you, he's not suggesting there that somehow they could have believed and then suddenly stopped believing that somehow they could have believed and lost their salvation. There is that view out there certainly among some churches that say that salvation is something to be gained and lost maybe multiple times as you go through life and you experience the various peaks and valleys of your existence and devotion to Christ, that these represent a sort of salvation and a non-salvation and a resalvation. Well, the Bible teaches The opposite, it teaches that uh, that God has given into the hands of Christ those who believe in Him, and Christ says, based on His own faithfulness, that no one will snatch you out of His hand if you believe. But even those who who, who would stand in that category, those who would, we would say, embrace a perseverance or preservation of the saints, would agree with those who, who would deny it and say that salvation comes and goes, we would both stand together and say the same thing, that if you do not hold fast to the gospel which was originally preached to you, and you fall away, then you are not a believer. That is to say, it's possible to have empty faith, which is another way you could translate the end of verse 2 there. He says, you believed in vain. The word vain is basically empty He says you might have had an empty belief, a superficial belief, a belief which maybe gave a verbal profession because you were excited about something that you saw in Christianity and the church, but you didn't really understand what you were being called to believe. Because Paul says what you're being called to believe is that there was a man 2,000 years ago known as Jesus Christ, who was crucified on a cross and was laid in a grave and didn't just stay there, but three days later came out of the grave in a resurrected body. And if you cannot believe that, you are not saved. In fact, he says it. You'll go down to verse 19. He says it very plainly. Look, if we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all men must to be pitied. Look, if you're, if you're involved with Christianity because you think somehow it just gives you some moral principles, that's going to make your family happier or give you a happier marriage or make you a more successful businessman or just make you feel better about yourself or whatever it might be, Paul is writing that to you. If that is all the hope that you have in Christianity, you are to be pitied. That is no kind of salvation. And it's certainly not a Christian. You can join the ranks of the moral atheist. You can join the ranks of the moral Jew. You can join the ranks of the moral Muslim. That's all it is to you. The distinguishing characteristic of a Christian is that they believe in their heart Jesus is Lord and they profess that God has raised him from the dead. This is core, Paul says. It's core. You say, well, why is that? I mean, why make such a big deal about the resurrection? I mean, why, not? why can't we just focus on the cross? All the songs are about the cross. We always sing about the blood, all these wonderful things. Why, why is the resurrection, why do we have to be so committed to it? Well, it's very simple. If Christ can be defeated by death, you Certainly will. If Christ can be defeated by death. You. Certainly. Will. That is to say. If the death of our body. Is the result of sin. And the death of our body. Is still the final outcome. Then it indicates that sin. Has not been overcome sin has not been overcome by the way paul elaborates this if you go down to verse 13 he basically essentially unfolds this later on in the chapter when he says look if there's no resurrection of the dead then not even christ has been raised and if christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain we even are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So this is a, this is a logical overflow. If Christ isn't raised from the dead... Sin still reigns because death still reigns. But if Christ has defeated sin, death itself has been defeated, and He is the firstfruits or He is the evidence of that fact, which will then be followed by our resurrection in time. Christ isn't raised. Death ultimately defeated Him. If death ultimately defeated Him it still remains unconquered. If death remains unconquered, sin still rules. If sin still rules, there is no salvation. That's the logic. Now, some of the Corinthians had apparently come to believe just that lie. And it's really not surprising if you understand their background. They came uh, to Christianity, not just out of pagan backgrounds, but out of Greek culture steeped in Greek philosophy, which made a fundamental distinction between that which is spiritual and that, is, that which is material, and that which was spiritual was deemed to be good, that which was material was de- deemed to be bad, and there was always an effort to separate out from the material world into some more virtuous spiritual world. And many in the Roman Empire would have embraced this kind of thinking, most particularly the Corinthians, who, as we've seen time and time again throughout this letter, wanted to think of themselves as wise, wanted to think of themselves as knowledgeable. They loved to think of themselves as sophisticated, as intelligent, as erudite, or whatever it might be. And so over and over again, Paul has had to confront this tendency on their part to give their mind to unbiblical paradigms, unbiblical thinking in the way they viewed the world. And one of the ways, obviously, was the way they thought of life after death. They thought of it like many of the Greek philosophers did, some of whom denied it altogether, who would teach that the moment you die, you simply are eliminated from existence. There were others who... Who embraced maybe a more hopeful future, but still it was nothing more than some sort of ghostly, spiritual, non material existence beyond the grave. Or if they exe- accepted any kind of idea of any kind of material particles to your life, it would have been the common belief that when you die, you simply become light and are absorbed back into the stars. That was a popular way of thinking in those days. Of course, outside of the philosophical realm, there were all kinds of pagan, mystical, and traditional beliefs which had embedded in them an idea of maybe a bodily experience beyond the grave, but it was universally morbid and miserable and hollow, No restored creation, no glorified existence. Pagans would often bury their loved ones with little trinkets and miniature figurines, which they believed somehow would represent helpful things to them beyond the grave. And so you would put them in the grave sometimes with money, but sometimes with clothing sometimes even with food, and in some cases, you would put in there miniature houses and miniature pieces of furniture, all indicating that they, they thought of the afterlife in some sort of bodily form, some sort of resurrected form, but then when you see it represented in various works of literature in the ancient world, what you see is at best departed souls spending their life aimlessly sitting around a table eating and drinking day after day after day after day on for eternity. Or maybe something like the Gilgamesh epic where departed souls go to a house of dust, are covered in bird feathers, and eat clay all day long. Not exciting. The paradigm of the Bible is radically different. The paradigm of the Bible is that creation began perfect, that there was a fall which introduced death and brought corruption to all of creation, that there will be a day of restoration, which isn't going to be a half measure. God's not going to accept a half victory, regaining our souls but losing our bodies there's going to be a full restoration with the complete complement of everything God originally intended creation to be. Now this is hinted at, of course, in the Old Testament. Sometimes speaking of personal resurrection, Job famously says, I know my Redeemer lives and at last uh, He will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see my God. Job, probably the earliest and oldest of the Old Testament books, demonstrates that there was a resurrection hope and belief from the very early days. You go on through, you read places like Isaiah 26, where God promises to Israel, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Or most famously, in Daniel chapter 12, when Daniel says, In verse 2, many of those who are asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there was clearly in the minds of writers at various periods of time in the Old Testament this idea that they would one day die, but that wouldn't be the end, that they would be raised from the earth in, in their flesh to see God. And beyond that, you could set it against the relief or the backdrop of numerous passages which speak not only of a renewed body, but of a renewed creation. And this was the biblical view. And by the way, this was the Jewish view in the time of Paul and the time of Christ. Apart from a few Sadducees who denied the resurrection, the predominant Jewish worldview of the day looked for a renewed creation. And so the Bible's utterly clear. There will come a full restoration of our bodies with a full restoration of creation, which Paul, by the way, will go on to expound later on in this chapter. And so we can, we can say that life as we know it now is presents some paradigm for the life to come. That your daily activities and your daily existence, the things that you see and the things that you know and even the things that you do in this life on earth have some correspondence to what you will see and know and do in the life to come. It's all a part of God's restoration. Just as it is even a part of this corrupted and fallen creation. And Paul's arguing for all of this in this chapter. And this is why he says you must believe in this resurrection. This is why Romans 10 says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's not possible to be a Christian. And not believe that. He says. It's not possible. To be a Christian. And to think somehow salvation. Is something less than that. Because to deny the resurrection. Is to deny the resurrection of Christ. And it is to give the victory. To death. Which is to give the victory. To sin. Paul says uh, not only that, not only can we not deny the resurrection because it is necessary for our salvation, but secondly, we can't deny it because it's declared by Scripture. And this is his point in verses three and four. I delivered to you as of first importance—that is, that is, this is one of the key foundations of the gospel. What I receive that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that it was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared. And you see there his sort of fourfold presentation, two statements which he says were confirmed in the scriptures, and two parallel statements which were confirmed, we would say, maybe by experience. That the scripture clearly foretold that Christ would die and then when he did die, it was confirmed by the fact that they buried him. That this was, this was clearly what they believed about his body at that point. They put him in a grave. And then secondly, that he rose from the dead, as the scripture said. And this was confirmed by appearances to people. And we know this is true. We know the Scripture, for example, gives detail after detail after detail about Jesus' death. We're told in Isaiah 53 that He would be crushed for our iniquities, that He would be bruised on behalf of our chastisement, that the punishment that was due to us would be poured out on Him. Or we go to a place like Psalm 22, which talks about his hands and his feet being pierced, and all of his bones being pulled out of joint, and the roof, the the, the tongue cleaving to the roof of his mouth out of thirst. All of those things, which we see clearly portrayed on the cross, and even quoted by the gospel writers as fulfillment of Psalm 22. But not only that, we know that the scripture speaks clearly of his resurrection. Psalm 16 is quoted by by uh, uh, Peter on the day of Pentecost as he preaches as confirmation that God would not abandon the body of Christ to decay, but would raise him up, which Peter says God clearly has done. And all of this is just is just expounded there in that in that a uh, uh, great sermon by Peter, but it's just woven through the entirety of the Old Testament. Whether it is first of all the death of Christ, which we're told is all pointed to by the sacrificial system. So anytime you open up the Bible and you read, for example, from Leviticus, or you read from numbers, or you read from Deuteronomy, you read any of those things that talk about the need for sacrifice, the the slaughtering of a lamb, uh, the exchange of your life or your firstborn's life for an animal, all of those things are embedding in the minds of biblical readers and of Jews that there is a price to be paid for sin. All of that is pointing to the death of Christ. And then Along with that are these constant affirmations that God is not only dealing with sin through a sacrifice, but God is planning a restoration. And you have these wonderful pictures of a flourishing earth and flourishing economies and flourishing governments and flourishing restoration all around you as you look through the Old Testament. And those are all set side by side with, with these works, and we understand the complete picture, or I should say, when we understand the complete picture, we understand it's all pointing to Christ. This is exactly what Christ said. After the resurrection, He, takes, he meets a couple guys on a road, walking down the road to Emmaus, and they're, they're kind of trying to figure out what just happened with this whole crucifixion thing, and He said, Why are you so slow? To understand what was written by the prophets. You should have realized the complete picture. Not only of the death. But of the resurrection. And of the restoration. In fact he says, says beginning with Moses and with all the prophets. He explained to them the things concerning himself. Throughout scripture. The whole paradigm was there to be seen. And this is what Paul proclaimed to them. When he says according to Scripture, he would have meant the Old Testament Scripture. That's what he preached from. It's all laid out there. So for you to deny the resurrection, for you to frame in your mind some Christianity that doesn't have it, is for you, first of all, to deny what is essential and necessary for your salvation. But secondly, it is to undermine and deny the very Scriptures you open up to read on a daily basis. Thirdly, Paul says you can't deny the resurrection without also denying all of the witnesses. You can't deny it because it's proven by witnesses. I mean, you go to any civilization in the history of the world, you go to any government, you go to any court system, you go to any set of laws, and what you're going to find over and over again with every system of justice is a high premium put on the value of a personal witness. I mean, in our own judicial system, think about this for a moment. In our own judicial si- system, we are willing on the basis of eyewitness testimony to take a person's life. We're willing to put someone to death based on a testimony of a witness. Witnesses are universally recognized as powerful in every system of justice and law and so whenever paul comes to speak about the resurrection he brings forward what is most powerful here and that is the fact that he was seen by numerous people when he was raised from the dead there are, of course, those who've tried to suggest that the resurrection is just some sort of hallucination, or maybe some sort of ploy by a few delusional disciples who are brought forward, uh, brought forward some sort of story to pass off on the world. And, and those theories, I guess you could say, can be broken down into basically two. There is one category. That has a number of different forms, but we would just say in one category, we might just call it the stolen body theory. And it was, it was actually the first theory that was hatched by the guards themselves who woke up to find the tomb empty. And no doubt in some sort of despair, went back to report what took place knowing it would probably cost them their lives. Matthew 28, verses 12 through 15, record this for us. That they went before the council and the chief priests to indicate what had taken place. And these Jewish leaders said to them, Look, we will give you a large sum of money if you will go around telling everyone that the disciples came and took his body in the middle of the night. And not only that, when this is reported back to your Roman superiors, we will even keep you out of trouble. In other words, we're not only going to pay you, but we're going to keep your life. Well, I mean, they're not going to pass up that deal. And so they went around spreading this ridiculous idea that somehow a dejected and despondent group of former fishermen overtook a Roman Uh, uh, detachment, armed at the tomb, somehow, uh, through all of their despair, were able to remove the stone from the grave, went and took the dead body of their former leader, drug him out and hid him somewhere, and then went and convinced not only the entire city, but the entire world that he had been raised from the dead. Now, that would be pressing credibility enough. But even think about this. These very men who supposedly concocted this lie and foisted it on everyone else were so willing to stand for it that every one of them, save one, eventually gave their life for it. As Robert Raymond says, liars and hypocrites are not the stuff of martyrs. I mean this this stretches the boundaries of any kind of intelligible person to believe such a lie. I, I suppose there's all kinds of conspiracy theorists even in our own day who operate on the fringe of society. But but we know better. We know that's not the way people operate. Not only that, there's not just the stolen body theory there's a whole other category that we could group under perhaps what we call the swoon theory. And this is basically the idea that he didn't really die, that somehow it just seemed like he died, and that he eventually swooned, but came back from that and went on to, you know, stand up and proclaim himself the victor over the grave. Robert Raymond also comments on this in his systematic theology. He says, To believe this swoon theory pushes the limits of credibility beyond all boundaries as well. It requires one to believe that those responsible for his execution were incompetent both as executioners and as judges of the state of their crucified victims when they broke their legs. It also requires one to believe that Jesus... Though suffering from the excruciating pain of wounded hands and feet, not to mention the loss of blood, the physical weakness, and the shock of the entire system, which would have naturally ensued from the horrible ordeal of crucifixion itself, and the lack of human care and physical nourishment, somehow survived the wound in his side, the preparation of his body for burial, the coldness of the tomb, and then pushed the huge stone away from the entrance of the tomb with wounded hands, made his way on wounded feet past Roman guards into the city where he found his disciples hiding, and there convinced these beleaguered followers that he, an emaciated shell of a man, was now the Lord of life. End quote. Desperation, to say the least, right? None of these theories really stand up under serious historical examination. And they don't stand up under any logical examination. The fact is, the resurrection of Christ is one of the most verifiable facts of history. Almost immediately after his resurrection, his followers universally began to proclaim his resurrection from the dead. No one ever brought forth a body to rebuke them. They couldn't. There was none to be found. It would have been the simplest thing to do. Stop this movement and to shut up these disciples. But it was impossible. And Paul tells us not only that, he appeared to them. First of all, he appears, he says, to Peter or Cephas, as he's sometimes known. Paul doesn't give the details here. It had to have happened after his appearance to Mary Magdalene there in the garden and before his appearance to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Somewhere in that period of time, he would have appeared seemingly individually to Cephas. Jesus made this special appearance perhaps because of Peter's personal shame over denying Jesus, perhaps because he was the leader among the twelve. But whatever it was, Peter would be called upon to take bold stands for the Lord and would need this kind of reassurance that the Lord would be with him. And so Christ appeared to him in order to stress this grace that he was showing to Peter. Secondly, Paul says he appeared to the 12 which we know are not 12 at this point because Judas would have would have hanged himself but this was sort of a formal designation for those closest disciples of Christ this most likely refers to that same resurrection day when Christ appeared to them assembled in the upper room the lord appeared to them that day and they would see him on several other occasions They were certainly trustworthy eyewitnesses because every one of them, uh, except for John, would eventually give up their lives, as we said, in order to stand for this belief. Not only that, Paul says he appeared to 500 people at the same time. And if the disciples represent a quality of witness because of their willingness to give up their lives, this represents a quantity of witnesses, 500 people all Standing together, we're told in Matthew, on the Mount of Galilee before Christ's ultimate ascension. And at this point, Paul says, many of them were still with us. That is to say that this wasn't just some one-time proclamation, but they stood under the scrutiny of examination now for 30 years, giving unified testimony, no doubt throughout the entire church in the Roman Empire, of their witness of the resurrected Christ, although Paul says some of them had passed on. mentions also James, who's distinguished from the twelve disciples, and so we understand this isn't James the disciple. This is James, the half-brother of Christ, who eventually became the lead pastor of the Jerusalem church. He was one who originally did not believe in his brother, Jesus. We're told in John 7 that none of Jesus' family believed it would take not just the crucifixion but the resurrection itself before he would finally upon seeing the resurrected christ come to believe in his half brother and then he says all the other apostles this a group obviously again distinguished from the 12 this would indicate all of those other men in the new testament who met the qualifications of an apostle that is to say they saw the resurrected Christ, and they were personally commissioned by him as apostles of Christ. Paul says all of these reasons, for all of these reasons, you can't deny it. To deny it would go against all credibility and all historically sound-minded investigation. To deny it would be to deny the very scriptures that you claim to believe as a believer. To deny it would be to undermine your very salvation. Paul's not done. He has more reasons here. in Verses 8, 9, and 10. He will turn to his own personal testimony. And in verse 11. Even the centrality of the proclamation. Much to be said on both of those fronts. We don't want to short change them. So we're going to spend more time on that next week. If you're here today. I don't know what you've heard about Christianity. I don't know what you've been asked to believe. You might have been told that Jesus is just there to make you feel better and to make you a better person. You might have been told that Christianity is about doing good deeds or somehow finding the answers to your own self-fulfillment. Look, there's peace, there's joy, there's hope, there's all kinds of benefits that come with Christianity. That's not at its core. At its core is the challenge of belief. For you to believe That a man walked the earth named Jesus. That he died on a cross 2,000 years ago. And that he rose from the grave as evidence that he has defeated death. Because he's defeated sin. And the offer to you, the same offer that Peter made to these people. Is that you would believe that testimony. And in believing, not only do you have your Sins removed, but having your sins forever removed, your promised, resurrected life forever in the presence of God. The only alternative is to stand under the weight of your sins, stand in judgment before God, face the eternal condemnation that comes with that. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer here. I want to encourage you, if you're here today and you've never believed that gospel, don't leave here today still unbelieving. I want you to find me after the service. I want you to find any of our leaders, any of our teachers. We'd love to show you from the Word of God how your sins can be forgiven, and how you can have the hope of eternity because of Christ. Well, let's stand together, and I'll close this in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful this morning, so grateful for your magnanimous plan, thankful that we have a hope Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I pray father that you would. Move in the hearts of every person here today. That none would leave. Still. In disbelief. Over that. Father I pray that you would. Convict of sin. Righteousness. And of judgment. Pray. That the resurrection of Christ. Would come alive to every heart. Because Christ has come alive. He lives forever and ever in His glorified body, long for the day when we join Him. Lord, may you hasten that day. May our salvation come quickly, full form, for your glory. pray in Christ's name.